First Peter 1, 13 through 25, my father-in-law uh, is in heaven now. I remember him telling us a story more than once about the summer he worked at his dad's refinery. And when I say his dad's refinery, I mean, Car- uh, Carrie's grandfather, my father-in-law's dad, uh, was, he ran a Sinclair oil refinery. So my father-in-law, teenager, young adult, somewhere in there, uh, worked the summer for, at his dad's refinery. One day, uh, as the story goes, uh, they, they had a break and he and some of the other young guys were sitting around just shooting the breeze. And they were telling stories about their dads. And as young guys can kind of do, sometimes they were getting a little disrespectful about their fathers. They were telling embarrassing stories about their fathers. And my father-in-law decided he wanted to fit in. So he started a story by saying, well, my old man, And right then, there was this big roughneck who was standing a few feet away, not even part of the conversation, but he turned on his heel, came over and grabbed my father-in-law by the shirt collars, got in his face and said, boy, I better never hear you talk about your dad that way again. And he never did. Now, the interesting thing to me about that story is, I assumed that this guy had heard what all the other young guys were saying about their dads, but he didn't comment on them. It's as if the implied message was, I don't know their dads, their fathers may be worthless, they may be trash, I know your father. And with the father you have, you need to be better than what you are. Now, we are in this series, as Nathan said, about making progress. First Peter is all about living in a world where most people don't believe as we do, where we face trials, we face uh, struggles, we face ridicule for our faith, and yet, we should always be making progress. Doesn't mean that we, our income always goes up. It doesn't mean that we grow better looking each day. By the way, some of you haven't gotten to this cutoff yet, but there's a cutoff in life where beyond which every day you get less good looking. It's really disturbing. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm past that point now. So look at me, this is the best I will ever look, right? And most of you the same. It's not about that kind of progress. It's about growing in holiness. And holiness is a term that we're not really familiar with. As much as we've been in church, we hear holy and we think of uh, a a priest's vestments, you know, the little collar and the black robe, or we think of holy water, incense, or as, as Baptists, we talk about the Holy Bible. But the word holy simply means set apart for God. So, to grow, whole, to grow in holiness means you grow in more and more to become the person God wants you to be. It's, it's leaving behind a life that says, my life is mine, and God, if you want to be a part of my life, then you bless me. You leave that part of life, that kind of life behind, and you go into a life that says, my life is not my own. I give it to you, Lord. I want you to live through me. I, I lay aside my goals, my preferences, my dreams. I give them to you, and whatever happens, I hope that your plans for me take place. That's the life of holiness. Holiness. And so get ready because a big Galilean fisherman named Peter is about to grab you by the shirt collar and get in your face and say, Do you know who your father is? Do you know what he's done for you? Do you know what you're worth? You should be living better than this. This is not going to be a message that is comforting. This is not going to be a message about how wonderful you are. This is a message that is going to challenge every one of us. So gird up, get ready. Verse 13 Therefore, preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also shall be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him by your obedience to the truth, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So if you're a note taker, this is a very simple outline today. There are two questions that Peter is answering for us this morning. First of all, in what way should we be different? What does holiness really look like? How should we be set apart from all other people on earth? And number two, why should we be different? What is the motivation to live that way? Because I'll be honest with you, it's easier not to. So let's take that first question. In what way should we be different? If you ask the average person in this part of the world, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, what sets Christians apart from others? What makes Christians different from other people? The typical answer you're going to get from most people is in terms of rules, rituals, and doctrine. We believe in certain doctrines. We believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross for our sins, rose again the third day. We, we practice certain rituals. We go to church. We become part of a life group. We get baptized when we, when we come to know Christ. We take the Lord's Supper. And then there are certain rules that we follow. There are commands in Scripture that we believe are binding for all time. Even if those, they're countercultural, we still live or do our best to live according to those commandments. Now, isn't it interesting if you've grown up in a religious part of the world like this one, so you grew up around people who are members of various churches, Isn't it interesting to observe the different parts of those three things that people emphasize? I'll give you an example, and I call these boundary markers, ways of deciding who's good and who's not, who's in the club and who's out. So when I was growing up decades ago in a little Baptist church, everybody I knew who was Baptist believed that there were certain things, certain sins that were worse than others. No one would have said it that way, but there were certain sins that if you committed them or certain things that if you did them, They were outside the realm of morality and therefore you could not be a good person. As Baptists, we believed uh, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, that you didn't drink alcohol and you didn't use bad language, right? Those Those were the two biggies. Because the honest truth was, we knew that greed was a sin and pride was a sin and, and bigotry and, and unforgiveness and, and all these other things, but there were people in Baptist churches that committed those sins with impunity. I mean, nobody was ever gonna say, wait, you've got a sharp temper, you can't be a deacon. Or hey, and, you, know, you love money a little too much. Or hey, you know, you're a racist, you can't teach my Sunday school class. We just didn't do that. Those weren't things that we judged. But if you caught the deacon in, 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 the, you know, the, in the liquor store or you know, your Sunday school teacher hit her thumb with a hammer and then yelled out a bad word, okay, well, you're out. There's no way, you can't be a good person. And that didn't make sense, but it was what we believed. And every group was that way. For instance, I grew up in a very heavily Catholic part of Texas, so a lot of my friends were Catholic. And I noticed that they had different boundary markers than we did. 
believe the same Bible, worship the same Jesus, but you know, my Catholic friends when we got to be teenagers didn't seem to have a problem with going out on Saturday night and getting drunk as a skunk and then go to mass in the morning, no big deal. In fact, they figured out you could game the system. You go to mass on Saturday, and then you can stay out as late as you want on, on Saturday night, right? Don't have to worry about getting up Sunday morning. But they looked at me and said, oh, you don't practice the sacraments of the church? Well, you're going to hell. So there was a very different set of boundary markers. And then I had friends that were Church of Christ. And they took Baptist boundary markers and said, okay, we like those. We're gonna double down on those, okay? We're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna double down on that and we're gonna add our own, like you can't use instruments in worship because there's nothing in the New Testament about using instruments in worship. And I'm like, there's nothing about air conditioning in worship in the New Testament either. But nobody, you know, we don't wanna bring that up. Um, and, and every church, even today, different branches of the Christian faith, you go to some churches and it's a whole another set of boundary markers. Today, very, very common to walk into a church and realize, oh, it's all about how I vote. I need to vote this way. I need to believe this certain political persuasion or else I'm not a good person. I'm not one of the chosen few. And so these boundary markers exist, but I want you to notice, as Peter's talking about holiness, he doesn't talk about any of that stuff. Doctrine's important. There are certain truths in scripture that you and I ought to be willing to die rather than deny. And yet Peter doesn't mention doctrine here when he talks about holiness. Ritual is important. We're commanded in Hebrews 10, do not forsake assembling together with believers. Going to church is commanded by God. Being baptized as a believer in Jesus by immersion is commanded by God. Taking the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. That's commanded by God. And yet Peter doesn't mention any of those either. Nor does he mention any moral rule. Peter knows the commands of Scripture are binding. They count. But he doesn't try to go through a list and say, okay, if you want to be holy, keep this one, this one, this one, and this one. Why? First of all, he's not going to play the game of boundary marking. He's not going to play the game of saying, okay, you're in and you're out because of this sin or that ritual. Because they all matter. The second reason is he knows these things can be faked. Put it this way. When Jesus was on earth, this is God. This is Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, who's living on earth. You know who hated him the most? You know who conspired to put him to death? They were the people who were the most doctrinally correct, the most religiously devout, and the most conspicuously moral. They had all three. And yet they hated Jesus. So holiness is not in those three things, as important as those three things are. Holiness is in something different. He mentions two things specifically. Number one, he mentions fearing God. You become holy by fearing God. Now, if you read the Bible, you'll notice that is a term that is used often in Scripture. Fear God, the fear of the Lord. And that confuses us because in English, the word fear means something very clear. I am afraid. I, I am afraid of heights. I'll tell you that. Some of you are afraid of spiders. Some of you are afraid of snakes. Some of you are afraid of clowns. Some of you are afraid of speaking in public and so forth. That's not the kind of fear that's talked about here. The word fear that's used here refers to reverence combined with devotion. It is adoring someone or something and yet knowing I can never be that. So here's the way I understand the fear of the, God, fear of the Lord. Yeah, I love this illustration. It makes perfect sense to me. Hope it does to you. When I was in junior high, one day we had a substitute teacher in one of my classes and it was my mom. Imagine my surprise. Now, I'm like most kids. When we have a sub, I just feel like, eh, I don't have to behave. 
I mean, she's only gonna be here one day. What's she gonna do? I don't have to listen. I, I can talk to my buddy. I can smart off. I can be, I can be whoever I wanna be. She's just a sub. Anybody who substitute teaches, you deserve hazard pay because that's what kids think. But you better believe when I looked up there and I saw my mom was the sub, I was squared away. I was buttoned down, following the rules. Why? Was I afraid of punishment? Well, I mean, there would have been consequences if I would have acted like an idiot, but it wasn't that. I knew my parents were going to love me no matter what. I behaved myself. I acted differently because my mother, even when I was in junior high and a total moron, my mother was the person in the wide world who I cared about the most, whose opinion mattered the most to me. I wanted my mother to think that I had done well. I wanted her to be proud of me because that's what she meant to me. I loved her, but I also feared her, you see? And that's the fear of the Lord. It's to, to understand that everywhere you go, even though you don't see him visibly, even though you may not ever hear an audible voice in this life, he is with you. He is watching you. He is aware of everything you're doing, even everything you're thinking. And the fear of the Lord is to say, Lord, I want to conform in every way to you because I want you to be proud of me. I'm not trying to earn anything. I'm just trying to put a smile on your face because that's what you mean to me. Now, can you imagine if people began to live, Christian people began to live every day with the fear of the Lord? And here's something even better because Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, there's all kinds of knowledge, all kinds of knowledge you can acquire. If you want to learn to be an attorney, you go to law school. If you want to learn physics, you major in physics in college. If you want to learn to drive a, a, an 18-wheeler, there's a school for that too. Any skill you want, you can find it. You can find skill and knowledge on, on YouTube videos, for that matter. But there's only one place you can find wisdom, and that is by fearing God. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom's better than all those other kinds of knowledge because wisdom is practical. Wisdom is the ability to make good decisions. Now, now get this. Do the math with me. If you become a person who fears the Lord, you're going to grow in wisdom. You're going to start making better decisions. People are going to notice and they're going to say, she always does what's right. She always makes the right choice. I want to get around him because he's wise. When I have questions, when I don't know what to do, I want to go to him, to her, because they have proven to be a person of wisdom. So if you fear the Lord, then you're going to grow in wisdom and you're going to become an influencer of others. Not in the stupid Instagram way of that term. I mean, you are going to become literally a person who changes the lives of other people. Now that's not all. The fear of God is holiness, but also to love one another is to, is to be holy. Love one another, as he says in, in verse 22, having purified your souls, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now again, we don't understand the term love because we've been trained by this culture to believe it's one thing when it's really another. Our culture, movies, books, music have taught us that love is emotion. Love is based on how I feel when I look at you or how you make me feel when we're together or what you do for me to make my life better. Love is what I feel. And that's why we freak out when Jesus says, love your enemies. Well, how can that be? How can I possibly ever do that? Or love your neighbor as yourself. We get like that lawyer in the scriptures and say, okay, well, but, but who's, my, who's my neighbor, Lord? Because I can't love them all, right? Jesus says, yes, you can Because it's not about how you feel. Are there people in this world that you're not gonna like? Yes. Can I just be honest? There are people I don't like. There are people who aren't my cup of tea. There are people who, when they walk up to me, I'm like, 
great. All of us are this way, all right? All of us. But you can still love that person. What does it mean to love them? So anybody here speak Italian? Anybody? Anybody fluent in Italian? Okay, good. Because I read this, and I don't know if it's true or not. It's on the internet, so, you know. Apparently, according to what I read, the way you say, the way Italians say I love you is te voglio bene. It helps if you do your hands like this. Te voglio bene. So what it means literally, it literally doesn't mean I love you. It literally means I want what is good for you. Now, I'm not Italian in the least. Uh, I'm part German, part English, but the Italians got this right. This is what love is. Love is not how you feel. Love is, I want what is good for you. I'm gonna work for your good. I'm gonna will the good for your life. And that's why you can love your enemies. And that's why you can love people who you don't even like. That's why if I am the worst person you know, you don't have to like me in order to love me. You can still pray for me. You can still pray that God would bless me, that God would make himself known to me. You can still help me when you see me struggling. You can still uh, do things that bless me, that encourage me, that, that make my day better. That is love. Now, think about this. If you don't have to like someone to love them, then there's no one you can't love. There are no more excuses not to love people. And, and even better than that, here's what I've learned. Yes, I, I just said a moment ago, you don't have to like everybody. But one thing I've learned is when you start to love someone and you love them consistently for a long enough time, your emotions start to come around and you start to say, you know, he's not actually that bad. You know, I, I, now, that I, now that I'm around her more, she's, she's a good person. Which, by the way, I'm going off on a little tangent here, but here's your free marriage advice, all of you who are married or hope to be married someday. When you come to that point in your marriage where you say, I remember when we were crazy about each other and now we're not anymore, I just don't feel that love anymore, and it will happen, that's part of marriage. What do you do? Well, you don't walk away. No, that's the moment where you say, okay, now I get to actually love this person. And you, and you will the good for them, even though you don't want to. You will the good for them. You pray for them. You bless them. You say, I'm going to do something today, one thing at least, that makes their day better. And your emotions start to come around. The more you love that person, the more you'll start to like them again. Now, imagine... If every Christian in America, heck, let's just say Montgomery County, if every Christian in Montgomery County became known as, I like that person because she always wants what's good for me. No matter what I do to her, no matter how I act around her, she always wants what's good for me. What if all Christians were known for that? Do you think the receptivity to the gospel in our culture would be different if that's what we became known for? So that's what it is to be holy. It is, it's not just rituals and doctrines and rules. It's, it's fearing the Lord and loving other people. Now, why should we aim for that? Why should that become the goal of our lives? Because it's so much easier not to live a holy life. And we know this. This takes an effort. Why should I make that effort? Well, not for the reason a lot of people think. Again, if you took a poll, and said, why do Christians try to live holy lives? They would say, well, because they want to go to heaven when they die. There was a, a billboard campaign in a city up north several years ago that an atheist group had, had paid to take out these billboards that said essentially, hey, Christians, stop trying to be good in order to get to heaven. Why not be good for goodness sake? And I thought, you people don't understand the gospel. You don't know the first thing about Christianity because the, the Christian faith does not teach that we are good so that we can be saved. 
If that were the case, we'd all be lost because none of us can be good enough. You know, that song we sang at the beginning of our worship service today, or actually the second song, uh, uh, it was finished at the cross. That's the gospel. The gospel is not what you do in order to be saved. It's what Jesus has already done. I mean, that's good news. That ought to make us happy. So if we, don't, if we shouldn't be holy in order to be saved, then what motivation is left to us? Well, that's what he goes on to say. He says we want to be different because of who we are, because of who we've become, and because of who our Father is and what he's done to bring us in to make us his. So look at verses 18 and 19 again. For you that were redeemed from your empty way of life, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. So in the Roman Empire, as Peter's writing, slavery was so common, much more common than it ever was in this country, and yet very, very different. Many of the people that Peter's writing to are probably slaves, and yet very, very different because in that culture, you could buy yourself freedom. If you had time at the end of your workday to go out and earn money from someone else, and you could save it up over years and years of time, you could potentially buy your own freedom. Or if you had friends and family who could pool their resources, which was very rare, nearly everybody was poor back then, but maybe someone who had enough money to help you buy your freedom, they would pay that ransom price. What Peter is saying is, your father paid your ransom price, not in money, but in something far, far more valuable. He paid it in his own blood. He became a human being. He died on a cross to set you free. And not only that, verse 20 says that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What's that about? That's saying that before any of this happened, before, before creation was, before you were ever born, thousands of years before you were born, God looked at, the, looked at us and said, okay, if I make them, it's gonna cost me everything. And he made you anyway. Now, I'm not good at economics. That's not my thing. My wife pays the bills in the house. First six months we were married, I paid the bills. We were always getting late notices. I'm not good at that kind of thing. She is. Here's what I know about economics, though. Here's what I know. Stuff is worth what people are willing to pay for it. Right? It's worth whatever people are willing to pay for it. So if you look at your uh, 69 Pontiac in the blue book, it'll tell you it's worth this much money. Well, why is it worth that much? Because that's how much people are willing to pay for it. If that's true, and it is, then how much are you worth? If the God who knows all things is willing to give his own life for you, if he would say, he would look at you and say, I'd rather die for you than live without you, then how much are you worth? You're worth, I mean, infinity isn't big enough to measure it. And so when we know this, it makes us motivated. If we're worth that much, let's, let's live up to the expectations, to the love, to the, to the investment that God has made in us. That's what we should be doing. That's why we should be doing it. It's, it's sheer gratitude. It's, we want to be, be able to stand before Jesus because guess what? Someday you are going to stand before the king of the universe and give an accounting of your life. And on that day, you're going to be saved by the grace of God if you've trusted in Jesus. But don't you want to be able to look at him and say, Lord, you rescued me with, at, at infinite cost. And, and here's what I did for you in return. 
I feared you every day of my life. I loved others. I invested in people. I had transforming relationships with these people and these people. And, and here's what I tried to do for you. It's not enough. It's not, it's not an equal trade, but Lord, I was so grateful. This is the way I lived in response. And that's, a, that's motivation enough. But here's another motivation. Here's why we should live holy lives. Not just because of gratitude, but because we can. Because we've been given the ability to live holy lives. So verse 23 says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. What's that perishable, imperishable stuff? So let me put it this way. I'm not gonna try to explain to you how babies are made, all right? That's your mom's job. You can ask her when you're old enough, but let me just put it this way. You were, you were born of perishable seed means nothing supernatural happened in order for you to be born. Your birth was the same as the birth of any other mammal on this planet. No, but when you come to Jesus and when you're saved, you're given a second birth, and that is supernatural. The new life that happens in your life when you accept Christ as Savior is a new birth that biology cannot measure or quantify or explain. It is supernatural. You've been given a new life. Now, when you read the comic books, every comic book character has an origin story, don't they? Clark Kent realizes, because I was born on the planet Krypton, the yellow sun of Earth makes me strong. Captain America gets injected by that stuff that turns him into uh, this super soldier. Peter Parker gets bitten by the uh, radioactive spider, and suddenly he can shoot webs and have super strength. You know what never happens in these origin stories? Never, ever does one of those heroes say, hey, I can do great things. I think I'll just continue living the way I did before. Steve Rogers does not say, I'm just going to stay home and, and uh, you know, become a welder or a, or a, a shopping clerk or a, or a school teacher. No, he's like, I've got this power. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat the snot out of Nazis because that's what I'm gifted to do. And we are called to live different lives once Christ comes into us. What a waste it would be to have the supernatural ability to become new, to become like Jesus, and then to waste it and to say, I'm just gonna do what I was gonna do anyway. You know, that's the reason why baptism is such a powerful image. We're baptizing people in that baptistry. Eight last Sunday, that was really cool. You understand that's just ordinary water. Their sins aren't being washed away up there. Christ has already washed their sins away by his blood. No, what's happening up there is those people are saying, I am not the same. I was born, and I was a sinner, and, and now I'm different. Now I'm new. Now I'm becoming more like Jesus every day of my life as long as I follow him. And that's why we rejoice when people get baptized. Now, many Christians don't seem to understand this. You hear Christians talk, and we're always making excuses for why we're not making progress, why we're not changing the way we should. Oh, you know, I'm a Christian, sure, but I'm not like a saint or something. Actually, you are. Because the word saint simply means set apart ones. If you're a child of God, if you belong to him, you are a saint. Don't get excited. We're not going to build any statues of you. But you're a saint. I hear, I hear people sometimes say, well, I'm a believer, but I'm not one of those born-again types. Well, actually, if you're not a born-again type, you're not a believer. Because the day you accept Christ, you are born again to new life. Jesus said it to Nicodemus in John 3, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So that means there's no more excuses. Listen, listen. 
All of us have our struggles. All of us have our weaknesses. All of us have our, our, our barriers to overcome. Some of you have grown up in horrific circumstances. Some of you have tr- terrific, horrifying uh, uh, trauma from your past that you're still getting over. Some of you uh, grew up in families that weren't believing families, or some of you work in environments or go to school in environments where you're not around any Christians, and so you receive no encouragement or help in your faith. Some of you have addictions. Some of you have uh, other weaknesses that you can't seem to get over. But I'm here to tell you, there's no more excuses. God's gonna love you no matter what, but that's not a reason to stay where you are. You've been given new life. You've been given supernatural power to change. So I don't know what this does to you. I'm just saying the only thing stopping you from living a holy life is you. That's it. That's the only thing in the whole universe. Even the devil himself can't stop you from becoming holy. Only you can. And again, I don't know what this does to you. I don't know how this impacts you. I imagine there are some of you here this morning who are saying, you know, I've been living my whole life trying to impress other people, my classmates, my, my colleagues at work, my family, but now I'm gonna, I'm gonna wake up every day and say, Lord, I wanna walk in the fear of God every day. I want you to be my audience. And I'm gonna wake up every morning and pray, Lord, help me to walk in the fear of you. Or maybe some of you are thinking, I'm just not a loving person. I've been very religious. I've been very moral. I just, I don't will the good of others. And I'm going to start that. I'm going to pray every day, Lord, help me to love that person you bring into my life. Whether it's my, my kids, my siblings, my parents, my spouse, my neighbor, my coworker, the person I can't stand. Help me to do something for them today to show love. Help me to will the good for them. Maybe that's your takeaway today. Or maybe, maybe there are some of you here today, I sure hope, some of you here today are going to finally say, you know, that, that sin that I've been so stubbornly hanging on to, making excuses for, rationalizing, it's time for me to bring it to the Father and say, I want to get serious about giving my whole self to you. Not just the things that are easy. Here are the things that are hard. Whatever it is, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would not walk out of here the same. Because here's the thing. God believes in you. Whatever you decide to do, God believes in you. You are worth infinity and more to him. And that will never change. And he has paid the highest cost, the highest cost for your life and for your soul. Why waste that?